Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. I am presenting a series of programs on the subject of the arrest and the trials of the Lord Jesus, and today's program is a continuation of the previous broadcast. Now, in the previous broadcast, I was explaining the trial that Jesus had before Annas, and in today's program, I'm going to be going through the details of the trial that he had before Caiaphas. Annas sent Jesus away to Caiaphas. Caiaphas was recognized as the high priest of Israel because he was put in power by the Romans. Annas was the official high priest according to the law of God. But Caiaphas was recognized by the Romans, and so Caiaphas had the authority to execute judgment against people, whereas Annas did not. Now, Caiaphas was the high priest, and being the high priest, he was the head of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was composed of between 23 and 71 people at any given time. What I mean by that is that when a trial took place, they had to have a minimum of 23 men, and there was a maximum of 71. One of the judges of the Sanhedrin was the high priest himself. He presided over the Sanhedrin. So one of the seats was filled by the high priest. Twenty-four seats were held by the chief priests. There were 24 chief priests in Israel at any given time, and they held a seat on the Sanhedrin. They were Sadducees. And then 24 seats were held by Pharisees. And then the remaining 22 seats were held by the scribes. Now, the Pharisees and the scribes agreed together theologically and politically for the most part, and so they were considered to be the opposition to the Sadducees, who were recognized as the high priest and the chief priests. Now, if any seat was open because somebody was not able to attend for whatever reason, if there was a seat that was open, the seat could be filled with Sadducees. That was the procedure in order to fill any empty seats, but it was not necessary to have all of the seats filled. Now, according to the records that we have, the Lord Jesus was taken to the house of Caiaphas, and a trial took place there. When Jesus arrived, the Sanhedrin was assembled, which was composed of the high priest, the chief priests were there, apparently there were some Pharisees and scribes, but we don't know exactly how many people were actually there. What we do know is that Nicodemus was not in attendance, and Joseph of Arimathea was not in attendance. Both of them had a seat on the Sanhedrin at this time, and so there were at most 69 official members. The other two seats could be filled very easily by somebody else who was there who was also a Sadducee. And so this is the setting, this is the circumstance. Now, there are a number of laws that they are violating, a number of their own laws of the Sanhedrin, and of course, these laws can be found in the Talmudic writings on the Sanhedrin. The book of Sanhedrin describes all of these laws that I'm referring to and a lot more. There is a lot of information concerning how they are to manage themselves, how they were to select witnesses, how they were to disqualify witnesses, their procedures concerning how they would hold trials. Everything is well documented. There's no lack of information concerning how they are to operate. And there were many laws that they violated. I'm just pointing out some of the most obvious ones. Now, whenever they held a trial, it had to be held in a public place, and there was 
a place called the Hall of Judgment in the temple compound that all criminal trials were supposed to be held in. The fact that they are holding this trial outside of the Hall of Judgment in the temple compound is in violation of their laws. Probably the most important reason for why all trials had to be held there was so that the trial would be public, and if anybody in the public had an interest in what was taking place, then they knew exactly where to go in order to witness the trial taking place. If anybody was going to be a witness, they would know where they need to go. If anybody had additional information concerning the circumstances that people were passing judgment on, they would know where to go. Everybody would know that that is where you go. Now, in addition to this, all trials had to be held during the day. They had to be held after the morning sacrifice. The reason for this, again, was to ensure that all trials were public and nothing was done in secret, so no conspiracy could take place. Of course, this trial is happening at night because it is the result of a conspiracy. And so that is why they are all gathered here together in the middle of the night trying to find some way to pass judgment against the Lord Jesus. Now, there are several parallel passages that we have in the New Testament that we can turn to to study these events. But I'm going to focus on Matthew's testimony in Matthew chapter 26. Beginning in Matthew chapter 26, verse 57, it says, Those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. Peter was following him in verse 58. In verse 59, it says, Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus, so that they might put him to death. Now, of course, they did not have the authority to put him to death, but they could pass judgment against him. They might be able to find some way to compile enough evidence to present to the Romans so that the Romans would perform the execution. But they themselves did not have the authority to execute anyone because the Romans did not permit that. The Romans were in power at this time, and so all they can do is hold a trial, pass judgment, but they cannot follow through with an execution. They need their approval, they need the Romans' approval, in order to accomplish that. Now, in verse 59, there are many details that I think you should understand. The first thing is, is that they're looking for false testimony against Jesus. Well, that certainly is a problem, because if they had valid testimony, they could just use that. So just the notion that they're seeking false testimony should tell you that they are definitely violating their own laws. They are not supposed to be passing judgment on the basis of false testimony, especially testimony that they obtained themselves. Now, it does say in verse 59 that the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony. And there's a serious problem here, that the entire council is looking for false testimony. The most important thing to understand is that there was no one who was not looking for false testimony. In other words, there is no one who was speaking on behalf or testifying on behalf of the Lord Jesus. This is a violation of the laws of the Sanhedrin. All of the judges and all of the witnesses and all of the participants, they could all argue in favor of acquittal, but they could not all argue in favor of conviction. They could not all seek conviction. Somebody had to be seeking Jesus' interests. There had to be someone who was there. According to their laws, if there was no one who was speaking on behalf of the person who was there to defend himself, if there was no one who was seeking his acquittal, then he had to be released because according to their laws, there was a conspiracy taking place. And the one who was there on trial had to be innocent because somebody would have spoken on his behalf. And so this was a very important 
law of the Sanhedrin in order to ensure that things ran properly, and that is not what is happening here. In addition to that, they did not ask him to defend himself before they started looking for witnesses. False witnesses, of course, but witnesses of any kind. Because the procedure, according to the laws of the Sanhedrin, was that there was to first be the defense and then the accusation. Annas did accommodate this to a certain extent, but Jesus did not give any defense. Instead, he demanded that Annas find some witnesses. In this case, they should have given him an opportunity to defend himself, and the witnesses had to be present so that Jesus could see who his accusers were, so that he, as the accused, could defend himself in the appropriate context. So there was a procedural violation that was taking place here, that there first had to be the defense and then the accusation, and they were searching for the accusation before the defense. Now, continuing in Matthew chapter 26, verse 60, it says, They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. So there were several people who were willing to come forward and bear false witness. There were many people who were willing to give false testimony. But there's a serious problem concerning this, and that is that if you have two witnesses, they have to agree in every detail. And if you don't have two witnesses, then you cannot have a conviction. According to Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6, that's Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6, and Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, that's Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, every trial had to have a minimum of two witnesses that was necessary, and they had to agree in their testimony in every detail. Now, in this case, they had many witnesses, but the problem was that they did not agree in every detail. If you were to consider the testimony in verse 61, it says that he was able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. But there's a parallel passage to this, and this is found in Mark chapter 14, verse 58, where the witness said that he will destroy the temple. So what's it going to be? Is he able to destroy the temple and raise it up in three days? Or will he destroy the temple and raise it up in three days? And you might think that this is not very important, but it is. It's very important, especially for these people who are trying to find some way to convict the Lord Jesus over something, over anything, that they can officially codify, package up, and deliver to the public when the public wakes up in the morning. They're going to have to say something, and it has to be valid. It has to be acceptable to the people. There has to be something believable there. Even if it's all false testimony, it still has to be believable. Now, considering what was documented here, please understand that there was no law that said that a person could be convicted and put to death because they claim that they are able to destroy the temple, or even if they say that they will destroy the temple. Until they actually take action to try and destroy public property, there is no way that a person can be arrested, tried, and convicted. He has done nothing. He may have made some claims, but these claims were not worthy of death. And so the evidence that we have here shows me that they were not only desperate to find false testimony of some kind, they were desperate to find false testimony of any kind, and they were looking for anything that they could possibly come up with that could be used against the Lord Jesus. Now, these people know what they're doing. There's no question about their abilities. There's no question about their knowledge of the law, their knowledge about these things. 
Why is it that they're struggling with this? Well, the reason why they were struggling with this was because they were not very well prepared. I mean, if it appears that they were not very well prepared, it should tell you that they were not very well prepared. And they were not. They had already conspired with each other. They had already conspired and agreed that they were not going to act on this night. They were not going to act during the Passover. So there was no need for them to have everything together by this time. They had determined that they were not going to do anything on the Passover. It was the Lord Jesus who forced them to act at a time when they were not prepared to act, at a time when they were totally disorganized. They were totally unprepared. And the way that he did that was by exposing Judas at the Passover meal. When he exposed Judas, Judas went back and told them that Jesus knew about the conspiracy and that he knew that Judas was part of the conspiracy, and so they needed to act right then and there, or they may never have an opportunity to locate, arrest, and try the Lord Jesus to have him convicted and put to death. This could very well have been their best opportunity ever, and so they took it, even though they were totally disorganized. So continuing on into verse 62, it says, The high priest stood up and said to him, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? Well, again, he is violating the laws of the Sanhedrin by expecting Jesus to defend himself after the accusations. He's not to defend himself after the accusations. First is to be the defense and then the accusations. Now, there is a philosophical reason for this, and that is that people were to be assumed innocent before guilty. And so to provide the defendant an opportunity to defend themselves in advance kind of sets the bias, sets the tone for the entire trial. It turns out that people have a tendency to believe the first thing that they hear. And so if they hear an accusation against somebody else, then they'll have a bias against that individual. If they hear the defense first before the accusation, then they might have a bias towards the individual that the individual is innocent. This is a philosophical concept that was put into the laws of the Sanhedrin in order to provide people with a greater opportunity to defend themselves in the event that there is a trial. Now, it's important to understand that these laws were structured mainly to defend the people who were being accused. And the reason for this was not to give people a better opportunity to get out of crimes that they commit. That was not the reason for it. The reason for it was to increase the likelihood that a person who is innocent will not be declared guilty. The principle behind this is that it's better for a person to go free who is guilty than it is for a person who is innocent to be punished. Again, it's better for a person to go free who is guilty than it is for a person who is innocent to be punished. And so the laws were structured in this way in order to accommodate that because it was considered to be a greater evil to punish people who were innocent rather than let people go who were guilty. So again, in verse 62, the high priest demands that the Lord Jesus respond to the accusations. Now, in verse 63, Jesus kept silent. It says, but Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Okay, so first of all, in verse 62, the high priest demands that he respond to the accusations that are placed against him. And he doesn't respond to those. Why would he not defend himself? Well, the reason why is because, according to the laws of the Sanhedrin, you were to never give the defendant an opportunity to testify against themselves. That's why they had to give their defense before an accusation, because if they 
spoke after the accusation, then whatever they say might be used against them. And so there was to never be an allowance for the accused, after they have been accused, to testify against themselves. So the high priest tries to get him to do this. This is in violation of his laws. And then he follows it up in verse 63 with something else, with another accusation. Tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Okay, now first of all, there's no law that says that he cannot be the Son of God. There's no law that says that he cannot be the Christ. And so it's not as though he's really making an accusation officially. He's looking for an opportunity to make an accusation. In verse 64, Jesus said to him, he responded to this one. He said, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, declaring himself to be the Son of Man, he is definitely declaring himself to be the Messiah. This was well understood in the Scriptures. He's definitely declaring himself to be who he has always claimed to be. There's no confusion about who he is at all, except for the people who don't believe him. So then what do they do? In verse 65, then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. Okay, there are a number of problems with what he has just said here. The first thing that he has said is that Jesus is guilty of blasphemy because of his own testimony, and that was unacceptable. A person could not be convicted on the basis of their own testimony. The reason why, of course, is because the person might be trying to protect somebody else, or they might be suicidal, things like that. There had to be witnesses. He says that there is no need for witnesses. Well, of course there is a need for witnesses. There is always a need for witnesses. He is not following through with the proper procedure concerning a trial. And so he skips over these things, and by doing so, he violates the laws of the Sanhedrin. Now, he tears his robes, and this is a serious violation of the law, according to Leviticus chapter 21, verse 10. That is Leviticus chapter 21, verse 10. The high priest was never permitted to tear his clothes. Now, there is a philosophical reason for this, and that is that the tearing of a person's clothes was considered to be an expression of emotion. And the high priest is the head of the Sanhedrin, he was not permitted to show any emotion. He had to make decisions on the basis of what the truth was, not on the basis of how he felt. How you feel has nothing to do with the truth. It never has, it never will. Our feelings are nothing more than the results of whatever it is that we are thinking. And we could be thinking things that are true or things that are not true, it doesn't matter. The point is, is that the high priest had to make decisions on the basis of facts and on the basis of truth. For him to show that he is making a decision through his emotions is in violation of the Levitical law concerning the high priest. In addition to that, he says that Jesus has blasphemed. Now, this is very complicated. What does it mean to blaspheme? Well, to blaspheme means that you are declaring yourself to be God. That's really what it means. It doesn't mean that you include God's name in a phrase that would be considered to be a curse. That's not what it means. It means that you are identifying yourself as being the same as or equal with the living God. Now, according to the laws of the Sanhedrin, there was no way for anyone to commit blasphemy unless the actual name of God was pronounced. Now, there is no Mosaic law that declares this. This was a Talmudic law. This was a law that they came up with that was separate from the law of Moses.
that if a person is going to commit blasphemy, they have to pronounce the name of God. So what is the proper pronunciation for the name of God? Well, nobody knows. There is no way to determine that. He never gave us that information. There certainly are many opinions concerning what the pronunciation might be. There are many options that people have presented, but these are all wrong. We don't have enough information. The information that we do have can be used to invalidate all of the attempts that people have made. Again, the information that we do have will invalidate all attempts that people have made to find a pronunciation for the name of God. But we do not have enough information to determine what the name of God truly is. So why would they come up with a law like this to say that a person can only commit blasphemy if they pronounce the name of God when they don't know what the name of God is? They don't know what the proper pronunciation is. Well, the reason why they declared that was to ensure that no one would ever commit blasphemy. And please understand that the purpose of Pharisaical Judaism, the whole purpose of it, is to find a way to ensure that no one would ever violate the law of God. And so to say that a person will only commit blasphemy if they pronounce a name that they don't know is a way of saying that it is impossible to ever blaspheme God. That's what it means. That's what it's for. The Pharisees created a law. They created a law to ensure that no one would ever commit blasphemy. And yet the high priest right here accuses the Lord Jesus of committing blasphemy when their own laws have made it impossible for anyone to ever commit blasphemy. And so I consider that to be a violation of the laws of the Sanhedrin and the laws of Pharisaical Judaism and everything else that they can potentially represent. They are going against everything by following through with this. Now, when the high priest says that he has committed blasphemy, he has violated a law of the Sanhedrin, and that is that there was never to be a charge initiated by any of the judges. The judges were never permitted to initiate a charge against someone else. They could never make an accusation against someone else. Their purpose was to pass judgment on an accusation that somebody else makes. Accusations, charges were never to originate with the judges. If they did, then the judges had to remove themselves from their seat because they were no longer qualified to be a judge of the case. So if the people agree, if the people agree with this charge, then they also are guilty of making an accusation against the Lord Jesus. They are guilty of issuing a charge. And so none of them are quali- none of them are qualified to be a judge anymore when they do this. And sure enough, that's what they do. They do it by default in verse 66. In verse 66, he asked them, what do you think? They answered, he deserves death. Who said that? They all said that. Everybody said that he deserves death. Now, by them responding with these three words, they violate many laws of the Sanhedrin. Several laws. There are many laws that they are violating by saying this. The first law that I'd like to refer to is the notion that they have all just simply declared that he is worthy of death, which means that they have passed judgment against the Lord Jesus. They have taken a vote, effectively, passing judgment against the Lord Jesus. Now, the vote obviously started with the high priest. He was the one who not only issued the charge, made the accusation, bore witness, he was the one who did that, and he passed judgment and said that he felt that Jesus was guilty. And this was totally inappropriate, because when a vote took place in the Sanhedrin, 
the votes had to take place from the youngest to the oldest. Not the oldest to the youngest, but from the youngest judge to the oldest judge. And the reason why they put this in place was to ensure that the younger judges would never be influenced by their elders. This was a very important law of the Sanhedrin that they are violating. Another thing is, is that they issued a verdict that he was guilty right after the accusation. But according to the laws of the Sanhedrin, they could not issue a verdict of guilty or not guilty until 24 hours had passed after all the testimony that they had available was presented. There needed to be a period of time of 24 hours after the trial was over, after all the testimony was presented. They had to wait for 24 hours, and this was to give an opportunity for any additional testimony to come forward. And if any additional testimony came forward, then an additional 24 hours had to be observed before they would issue a verdict. This was a very important law of the Sanhedrin, and they have violated it. Now, the verdict was declared at night. This was a violation of the law. There were to be no proceedings at night. There was to be no verdict. There was to be no nothing that was to take place at night. They are violating their laws by declaring that he is guilty. Now, by saying that he is guilty of death, that he needs to be put to death, not only are they declaring that he is guilty, but they are also giving the punishment that has to be executed upon the guilty individual. And this is a violation of the law as well. Between the guilty verdict and the punishment, there needed to be 72 hours. The verdict and the punishment were to be separated by 72 hours. And the reason why there had to be 72 hours was to allow for additional testimony to arrive. In the event that a person is declared to be guilty, somebody will hear of this and perhaps they might come to the person's aid and say, you know what, I've got some additional information that will show that this person really isn't guilty. But I didn't think that it was necessary for me to present it because I didn't think it would go this far. So they allowed an additional 72 hours between the guilty verdict and the punishment, the judgment. They allowed for that, again, in order to protect the innocent. Well, I am out of time for this broadcast. I'm just about done with the trial. I don't have very much more to go, but there is enough that I do need to do one more program in order to complete this study. And so I will continue in the next broadcast. You've been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 38353, Colorado Springs, Colorado, 80937 or use the donation link on our website, livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net.